Welcome to episode 115 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. And I'm Gary Ferencik, a general internist and professor at Michigan State University. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, another family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. We're entering into what, at least for me, is probably the saddest time of year. Last night was the first game of the World Series, which means that summer is soon to be ended. On a more serious note, Kate and I, along with our colleague Tina Wheat, will be speaking at the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians meeting in Downers Grove. So if you find yourself with a free Saturday and want to come and join us, we look forward to seeing you. Thanks, Henry. So Strohs or Phillies? I have no vested interest in this. My Orioles did remarkably well. This I've been an Orioles fan since I was 11 or 12 years old. And um, Hyde, the Orioles manager, was named Sporting News Manager of the Year. So we went from being a cellar dweller to over 500 and contending for the playoffs this year. All right. Well, of course, half the half the major leagues made the playoffs this year. So it's a lower <laughs> bar than usual. So on this podcast, we highlight poems, patient-oriented evidence that matters. If you want to get them all, subscribe to Essential Evidence. Plus a great, you get all the poems, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 chapters and lots and lots of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on primary care update are those of the commentators in this podcast. doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. Um, you can get CME credit. Just go to IAFP.com, click on their education webpage to find our podcast. This week, mortality reduction from the treatment of osteoporosis, hypnosis for IBS, COVID rebound. We're not going to call it Paxlovid rebound anymore. And a low FODMAPS diet in patients with IBS. Kate, why don't you get us started? I sure will. So the study that I have, these researchers were trying to answer the question of whether treatment for osteoporosis actually reduces the risk of death. So they identified more than 100,000 patients who had both a diagnosis of osteoporosis and a hospitalization for major fracture, and they followed them over a 10-year period. They were using the Taiwan National Health Insurance Database, which captures data for, get this, 99.6% of the population of Taiwan. National health insurance databases are an amazing thing. So this was clearly not a randomized trial and patient characteristics were different in every demographic characteristic uh, between the, the groups that were studied. In this study population, uh, treatment with the bisphosphonate, uh, mostly alendronate or resendronate, uh, was started in about uh, 25,000 men and women. Patients who got bisphosphonate treatment were more likely to be female, they were older, and they were more likely to have a fracture. All of that makes sense. But that does mean that bisphosphonate users were at higher risk for mortality. They controlled for these variables in their analysis, and then they analyzed the results by duration of treatment, the type of fracture, and the type of treatment that, that the patients got. So overall, in the first three years of treatment, bisphosphonate therapy was not associated with a change in mortality, but people who had a hip fracture and got treatment did get a small benefit uh, after at least one full year of treatment, they had a hazard ratio of about 0.91 with a significant confidence interval. After three years, they also saw a lower mortality benefit in people who had both treatment and a major fracture. The hazard ratio there was 0.6, which is, it's not nothing. 
uh, similar benefit was seen uh, no matter what the treatment was, was whether it was alendronate, resendronate, or zoledronic acid, which is the, the infusion form. This was a very large observational study. And as I said, it did find this, again, not insignificant mortality benefit. A uh, 2019 meta-analysis actually didn't. So this question has been sort of debated and we found some, some somewhat conflicting evidence. It may be because treating people after they have a fracture confers a larger benefit for a, a higher risk population than treating people when they're diagnosed with osteoporosis, but before they have a fracture, which was the population of people in that 2019 meta-analysis. Uh, so again, osteoporosis in a high risk population, uh, once you have that fracture, treating probably confers a bigger risk reduction for mortality. And we know that treating uh, people who have clear cut osteoporosis and not that sort of thin osteopenia, the, the, the osteopenia population probably has a much, much lower chance of benefit than people who have uh, clear cut osteoporosis. Um, and, and both of those associated with a reduced risk of fracture when we treat with a bisphosphonate. That's what I've got, Henry. Over to you. Thank you, Kate. So my recollection from way back when I was an intern millions of years ago was that if a woman had a hip fracture, it was the kiss of death. That within six months to a year, chances were very high that she would either end up in a, and be, still be in a nursing home or dead. So I just did a real quick and dirty search on what's the mortality after a hip fracture in current times, and it's still anywhere from 15 to 27% one-year mortality. So that really gets at your point here, which is that these are the differences between a secondary prevention study and a primary prevention study. And so if you've got a really high-risk group, even a small benefit um, really uh, comes through in this. Uh, just a point of um, observation, if you will, that this was an administrative database that uh, captures a lot of information, but does not capture the nuances of clinicians' decision-making. And in, in addition to this secondary prevention benefit, it is also quite possible that the, um, that the physicians who are treating these women we're also selecting out those women who were frail or that they felt did not have a great life expectancy. And as a result, we're also more likely to receive the uh, bisphosphonates. Gary. Yeah, when, yeah, when, I, when, I, when I'm looking at this study, uh, first of all, I, you know, having death, you have a pulse or you don't, is such an easy marker of, of benefit or harm, depending on which way you're looking at it. <clears throat> I am interested, though, and maybe they didn't look at this, uh, what specific causes of death, and I, I, I tend to decrease or minimize the disease-specific mortality because sometimes it's difficult to figure out why somebody died as opposed to did they die, but did they figure that out at all? Did they look at that in terms of what types of um, conditions were less likely, uh, mortality-related conditions were less likely in those treated versus those not? Uh, was that was that part of the study at all, or they, did they just look at did the patient have a pulse or not? Do you recall, Kate? No, I think it was just all-cause mortality okay. that they looked at, and I don't remember if they broke it down into uh, into the specific. Um, yeah, it, I, I'm pretty sure they looked at, at fracture-specific or you know conditions specifically related to, to osteoporosis. But I think all-cause was their was their primary outcome. Yeah, yeah, no, I, and I, and this is very, I think it's very robust. Uh, it sounds like a very well done study, reasonably well controlled with all the problems you have with observational studies. So. Um, 
good. Yeah, good, years and years ago, we were looking at uh, using a single, you know, zoledronic acid is just a, a one time or an annual dose uh, infusion at looking at actually giving people that zoledronic acid infusion when they came in with their fragility fracture. So if you come in with that broken hip, what are the benefits of just giving it to people right when they're when they're still in for that for that fracture repair? Um, the orthopods didn't love it. They were worried that it would interfere with that post-operative healing. Um, but that may be, you know, versus trying to give somebody a, a, a monthly dose or even a daily, weekly dose of, uh, of another bisphosphonate. Um, but I still think that that may be, you know, sort of long-term, again, to, to sort of reduce the chances that we're going to look at somebody and say, well, you're not healthy enough or you're, you know, it may not be worth it to, to give somebody this. Or you're too sick and we should, we should definitely try to just sort of take that out of the equation. I'll save my orthopedic surgeon jokes for, for another time. <laughs> One about running through the elevator and sticking their head in the door. I think that was my favorite. Hey, you got a quiz? I sure do, to change gears dramatically. The quiz question today is, what unusual therapy was tested as a possible intervention to reduce the risk of COVID infection in a randomized trial recently published in the BMJ? Was it A, tincture of camphor, B, cod liver oil, C, lanolin salve, D, arnica inhalers, or E, intranasal iodine. Stay tuned for the answer. Okay. What Arnica. is Arnica? <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what that is. Anyway, I'm getting well, sleepy. Tell us about hypnotherapy and irritability. <laughs> so we're recording this a couple days before Halloween, and I was trying to think of something scary. And I love old movies. And and it, it dawned on me that, that not just all of the zombie and dra- that vampire movies and stuff, there were a whole bunch of scary hypnosis films that were out there, like Dead Again and Curse of the Jade Scorpion, and the probably the scariest movie of all time, The Manchurian Candidate. So uh, I found this paper, actually fairly recent, that our colleague Alan Shaughnessy reviewed, asking if gut-directed hypnotherapy was effective in decreasing the symptoms of patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Talk about a scary topic. So this was published by Louvdahl in Alimentary and Pharmacologic Therapy just earlier this year. Uh, They enrolled just under 120 adults who had irritable bowel syndrome according to criteria, but were refractory to treatment. They then randomized them to either individual gut-directed hypnotherapy. I have no idea what they were telling their guts to do, but uh, maybe act less like zombies. Or So either individual um, gut-directed hypnotherapy or group hypnotherapy, also gut-directed. So there was no other comparison group, no usual care, no placebo, no sham. So it's already got a couple of red flags in there. And what they found was that, and they had to administer like eight sessions over 12 weeks, right? So at the end of the, uh, the, the study period, they looked at the proportion of people who experienced at least a 50-point reduction on a 100-point scale. So that's a big improvement in symptoms, right? So what did they find? Well, they found that it occurred in 69% of the participants who got the individual treatment and 57% of those who got the group treatment. Now, that difference was not statistically significant, but that's a 12% absolute difference, which is a pretty, it's a single digit number needed to treat. So probably underpowered in that regard. But the real problem here is we don't know if they would have gotten better anyway. And so 
this is one of those things where un unless you're concerned about having hypnosis turn you into a zombie or a vampire or something, it's probably reasonable to consider for your patients who are refractory to treatment, at least until we get better um, uh, data. Mark. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what kind of a control group you'd use, you know, that um, certainly people are going to know which group they're in unless you do that. relaxation therapy, for yeah, example. The world's worst hypnotist in there for the control group. Someone who really is incapable. He can say all the things or she can say all the can't can't actually do it. So, yeah, interesting. I mean, I think, it, it, it you know, whether it's a placebo effect or not, it's, I think, pretty safe. So, yeah, sounds good. Kate? Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you have people who are already refractory to therapy and some of them get better with a, you know, an intervention that has a fairly low risk of, of harm, I think the biggest, you know, downsides would just be access. How do you find hypnotherapists? And then how do you find the patients who are, I think one of the tenets of, their, of hypnotherapy, I don't know a lot about it, but I think one of the, the tenets of it is that the patients have to be sort of open to it and agreeable to it. So then finding a patient who says, okay, I think this is going to work and I'm willing to, to try it. So mm -hmm. I think those would be the probably two biggest uh, problems with, with implementing. Sure I would not be one of those patients. I, I feel like I would also be like a little yeah. bit on the skeptical side. For, like, you're taking me back to middle school. I remember middle school, we had an assembly <laughs> and we all went down to the gymnasium and they had some guy come in. I don't know how, what this had to do with our educational process, but it was a hypnotism show. It explains a lot though. Okay. I hope I'm not the one that gets called up to get in the class in front of my grade classmates. You know, I just wonder whether that's a universal phenomenon of both gr your grade school and high school. I have a vivid memory of um, hypnotists coming in and causing one of my fellow students to bark like a dog, <laughs> you know, when there was a certain, the same when, there was a, when there was a certain age. trigger. And we both grew up in Michigan. I bet it was the same guy just doing a tour of so we just we just start to have to add, uh, start adding to the uh, to the database here, you know, the evidence based yeah. hypnotherapy. I'm telling you, man, there's an evidence base coming for this. I, All I just, right. Oh, good, 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 good. Okay, hey, I'm going to move on and um, talk about my study. This was in JAMA Network Open. It just came out like two days ago, so this is hot off the press. It's called Recurrence of Symptoms Following a Two Day Symptom Free Period in Patients with COVID 19 by Smith et al. And so Paxlovid rebound has been reported a lot in the media. Patients talk about it. They, you know, everyone thinks, oh, this Paxlovid drug is causing this rebound somehow. And it's defined as, you know, recurrent symptoms in someone who'd initially recovered after a course of Paxlovid. But is it the drug or is it just a feature of uh, the infection? And these authors use data from the placebo group in the active two randomized trial, which compared Paxlovid with placebo in outpatients who had been symptomatic with COVID-19 for 10 or fewer days. They had 158 participants in the placebo group, and they all kept a daily symptom diary for a month tracking 13 symptoms. They had a median age of 47 years, half were women, 31% um, Hispanic, 8% 8, 8 uh, identified as a member of a minority racial group. Uh, so during the month of follow-up, 68% achieved complete resolution of all symptoms for at least two consecutive days. So of those 108 patients, 48 or 44% reported at least one symptom recurring at least one day during the follow-up period after they had recovered. The most common recurrent symptoms were cough in almost half, fatigue, and headache in about a third. The recurrent symptoms, fortunately, were mostly mild. Uh, no patient reported severe recurrent symptoms. 
and only eight of the 48 reporting moderate severity symptoms for at least one day. So it was almost, you know, 86, I think 80% of mild symptoms. The interval between the resolution of the initial symptoms and the recurrence varied a lot from one day to over two weeks. So some of those later recurrences might've been unrelated. They might've been a separate viral illness. Uh, by my count, about half recurred in the first seven days after resolution. So those are the ones probably, you know, you could say were more likely to be associated with their COVID infection. There's a really cool diagram in the study. It's a free study uh, at JAMA Network Open. <clears throat> it lets you look at each recurrence, when it happened, how long it lasted, what symptoms were uh, associated with it. So I thought that was interesting. I think we all have made the assumption that <clears throat> Paxlovid was the cause of this rebound, but it looks like it's at least equally common, uh, maybe even more common in patients who uh, were not taking Paxlovid. So uh, Gary, what do you think? Yeah, no, that's, I think that's helpful information. I, I can't quite tell from the study whether they compared rebound symptoms with the active treatment versus the placebo group. But what I think the point you're making is that this is a very common, at least with the most current, um, you know, version of, of COVID, this rebound seems to be relatively common within, you know, uh, sometime after two days of the symptomatic phase of COVID. Um, so, do you know? Did they compare that to the um, to the Paxlovid group in terms of their their Not rebound symptoms? You know, that, okay. that's a great point. They didn't in this study. Okay, um, and this was actually done. Early on, this was done in 2020, oh. so it was actually the original or maybe the Delta yeah. strain. I think it was done in late summer. Okay, um, so it, it might have been Alpha, it. So it was Alpha variant around that time. Yep. So, in any case, um, so it was an older variant. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not with the Omicron. We don't know. Kate. So right around the time that the first uh, sort of FYI about the the possibility of of Paxlovid rebound had come out from the C, I think it was from the CDC. Uh, we were doing one of our live courses. I knew that this question was going to come up. I did a little bit of a deep dive into basically all of the available information, which wasn't a lot at the time. And even then, when they said, hey, this may be associated with Paxlovid, they were saying this may not be associated with Paxlovid. They said there, there had been multiple reports of people who pre-Paxlovid were reporting rebound of symptoms. Uh, so so the, the idea that it may not be medication associated was was sort of known from the very start. Uh, this is better data, I think, than they had at the time. But um, there were lots of cases. And the, what I thought was one of the more interesting ones um, were the, the cases of people who worked in virology labs. Um, and there were a couple, including people who had taken Paxlovid and, and those who hadn't, um, and people who had actually, uh, they, had, they had been testing positive, they tested negative, and then they tested positive again. And they actually typed their COVID strains to see, was it actually the same strain or did they get reinfected? Um, you know, like in a 14-day window. Uh, and it was the same strain. So they were able to show that it actually was a rebound phenomenon, probably mm -hmm. rather than a reinfection, which I just thought was interesting. But uh, yeah, the idea that this is not, uh, there's no conspiracy here. Um, it, it's, a, it's a sort of known phenomenon, uh, which yeah, I just thought was know, interesting. We're, we're so hardwired to look for causal, you know, make causal associations. I mean, I, I still remember the patient that had blamed her diabetes on a car accident. And it's like, I really don't think the two were accessible. You know, I was like, whatever. Yeah. Okay, fine. Let's move on. Let's treat your diabetes that was caused by your car accident. <laughs> so, so be it. You no, know, we're just wired. We're just wired for that. So that, I guess it doesn't surprise me. Okay, Gary, um, you're going to tell us about the latest acronym, FODMAPS. <laughs> so 
Yeah, thank you. So um, I, I actually I chose this specifically because I you know I've been seeing more patients coming back put on a FODMAP diet, etc. And thought, yeah, I'm not quite sure what that is exactly. So long story short, FODMAP is an acronym. Uh, if case uh, listeners aren't familiar with it, for four groups of food that contain contain fermentable sugars. So the FODMAP acronym, when spelled out, is fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And actually, I, I had to look up what a polyol is, and it's an alcohol sugar. So conceivably, these are, are foods that, uh, not conceivably, but these are foods that actually are fermentable in the gut. Uh, and they range from wheat to cashews to a- apples to asparagus to watermelon to milk. There's a whole host of a list of foods when you kind of Google or FODMAP diets. And conceptually, because they're poorly absorbed and osmotically active, they get fermented in the gut, thereby contributing to the IBS symptoms, bloating and pain and the like. And therefore, if one was to implement implement an elimination diet, you can theoretically identify the types of foods that are triggering the patient's symptoms, and then um, slowly introduce um, uh, the foods that in, in the FODMAP group that aren't producing symptoms back into the patient's diet. So that's the conceptual framework. So these authors set out to answer the question, is a low FODMAP diet effective for the treatment of irritable bowel, or IBS? This was published in Gut by Black et al. Uh, earlier this year. It was a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. Um, and it was actually a network meta-analysis um, and a lot of small studies. So there was 13 studies just south of 1,000 patients. Each individual study had you know, between 30 and 110 patients. Patients were identified using a standardized criteria for having IBS. Uh, and then what they did was they compared the FODMAP diet to several other types of dietary interventions, including usual diet, dietitian advice, or uh, the British Dietetic Association diet. So that in these metro, uh, metro, net, met, network meta-analysis, say that 20 times, uh, they, you know, they compare these studies to each other and then come to some summary conclusion. Maybe, Mark, you can explain that what that means a little bit more later. But it sounds like a very um, standard way of comparing different types of interventions through across different trials. So what did they find here? What they found here is, is that, uh, indeed, the low FODMAP diet, so remember this elimination-type diet, was most likely re- to reduce a lot of the symptoms associated with IBS, including pain, bloating, distension, and bowel symptoms. And also there's a um, a standardized um, metric called the global IBS symptom score that was also decreased. Uh, And then in addition, the diet was superior um, to uh, all the other comparative diets and the like. So this particular network meta-analysis basically showed that it seemed to have a fairly impressive effect uh, on multiple bowel symptoms and global symptoms in patients with IBS. Um, certainly sounds like it's something that as a primary care physician would be relatively easy to talk about, maybe relatively hard to implement. It might then therefore require the use of a, of a dietary um, consult to help the, stu- help the students, help the patients go ahead and start uh, you know, eliminating diets from those four foods from those four groups and then slowly introducing them back again. So, uh, so I learned a lot by just, just by understanding what FODMAP meant and then how it's implemented for this particular patient population. And there seems to be an evidence base right now. And the question is, if patients are symptomatic and having, you know, unacceptable symptoms that are not otherwise well managed with hypnotherapy or whatever, why not? <laughs> so I, I have a question though. Can, can you eat bacon on a FODMAP diet? Yes, yeah. I think you can. Absolutely. <laughs> Unless there's sugar in it. 
Do you, do you have the sugar enhanced bacon, Mark? Is that what you're eating this morning? <laughs> well, I think there's... For our listeners, I got a phone call at 10.02 this morning on a Saturday as I was making my my sunny side up eggs and bacon for breakfast and saying, Mark, we have a podcast. <laughs> so I've got my bacon here. I, I still haven't had it. My my dog Brody had his piece of bacon, so he's got that piece that off. So anyway, I have been worried that you haven't eaten it yet. So it's going to get cold. It's still there. Um, please feel free. Uh, so I, this is a meets matches well with my, what I've seen in practice, which is both that it's widely used um, has certainly been taken up pretty widely in the last, I don't know, five years or so. Um, and that people do get good benefit from it. Um, not everybody, not universally. And most people do find that the elimination is extreme. So there's a lot of things on that FODMAP diet. So when they're in that sort of first eliminate everything, that's hard. Um, but that most people are able to add back a lot of foods, maybe not all of them. And then, you know, trying to eliminate onions from your diet entirely is hard if that turns out to be the thing that, that causes your symptoms to be so bad. Um, but that people do get pretty good symptom relief from it. So uh, this certainly does, like I said, match up with what I've observed in clinical practice. Henry? Yeah, so we were obviously joking, but there are some things that are allowable on that diet. Um, uh, eggs and meat, as we've already alluded to, certain cheeses, uh, brie, camembert and the like, nut milk, uh, grains. You, you need to stay away from wheat, but rice, quinoa, oat, all of those are allowed. A, a wide variety of vegetables. Uh, my my wife makes this really great ratatouille, and all of those things would go uh, nicely into that. The eggplant and the zucchini and the like. Uh, there's a variety of fruits. But you know, this whole thing about IBS is is really interesting if you start a step back. So first of all, both the American College of Gastroenterology and the British Gastroenterolo Gastroenterologic Society in their IBS guidelines both um, recommend an initial trial of a FODMAP diet, okay? With, with some caveats, but again, low, low likelihood of harm, um, reasonable probability of, of benefit. But there's this bigger question is, is IBS a gut problem or is it a problem with central pain processing? That's at least one of the theories behind why the uh, tricyclics are potentially effective. Now, granted, the tricyclics also have effects on gut as well. And so maybe it's a, a, a function of uh, both. So there's a lot of the underlying science around IBS that's out there that needs further study. But in the meantime, we've got to manage this common problem. And here's a, a, a relatively simple, straightforward, and clearly much more accessible solution than is group or individual hypnotherapy. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how much of this, kind of like with the folks who choose to uh, eat a gluten-free diet, even though they don't have you know, official celiac disease, it, how much of it is just being more intentional about your diet? How much of it is just thinking about what, you, <clears throat> what you're eating, maybe avoiding processed foods that often have lots and lots of ingredients that you have to avoid and eating more whole foods. And I don't know, I just wonder, and either way, I mean, I, I fully support trying this, but I wonder how much of it is just being intentional and improving the diet in, in a more basic way. So anyway, really interesting stuff. Hey, uh, we're gonna finish up with the quiz. Yeah, the quiz question to remind you is what unusual therapy was tested as a possible intervention to reduce the risk of code infection? 
in a randomized trial recently published in the BMJ. Uh, our answers today are, was it tincture of camphor? Was it cod liver oil? Was it lanolin salve? Was it an arnica inhaler? Or was it intranasal iodine? The answer was B, cod liver oil. And this isn't as outlandish as it seems if you remember that cod liver oil is a source of vitamin D. And if you remember how plentiful cod are in Norway, which is where the study was done, these researchers enrolled about 34,000 adults who weren't taking another form of vitamin D. They randomized them to 5 ml of cod liver oil or a matched placebo every day, and then they followed them for six months. They found that the rates of COVID infection, death, and hospitalization were the same in each group. It was a good idea, but uh, sadly, no change from cod liver oil. This trial is interesting to nerds uh, because the researchers made note of using a special tasting panel to ensure that the cod liver oil and the placebo oil were truly indistinguishable, uh, reducing the chances of bias from unblinding. So that's the, I thought that was very interesting. Arnica, Henry, is a, uh, it's a, it's a plant um, and a, a widely known as an herbal remedy. Um, it doesn't actually come in uh, an inhaler form, but I had already used a topical, so I had to pick something else as a distractor here. That's our quiz. Well, on the topic of preventing COVID, I was just at a meeting in the in um, uh, in Europe and Sweden, and it was a GP research on infections network. And Paul Little is one of the leading researchers in the world, in, you know, over the past thirty years on respiratory infections. He's out of the UK, and Paul was there. He he won the Morris Wood Award a couple of years ago from uh, NAPCRAG, so he's a really esteemed researcher. And he's doing a trial of fifteen thousand people in the UK, testing. Vicks First Defense Nasal Spray, which is a nasal spray that just changes the pH a little bit and has a couple of ingredients that are supposedly inhibitory of viruses. And he, he tells the story. What inspired him was he tried it. He and a colleague went to a research meeting in the summer, and they used this Vicks Defense Nasal Spray. They didn't get COVID. Five other colleagues who also went to the meeting all got COVID. <laughs> so he's, he's said, this might be worth a trial. So um, anyway, so we'll... we'll Stay tuned. We'll let you know. So from an anecdote of five, you go to a trial of 15,000? <laughs> well, I mean, the good thing is not just COVID. If it works, maybe it also would work against flu and other respiratory infections. Who knows? Uh, I got my bottle. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, you guys, for joining and uh, for getting me away from my breakfast. Thanks for listening today. For I, uh, CME credit, IFP.com, click on the online IFP education webpage. They're accredited to give you one half credit just for listening and answering a couple of questions. We hope you all enjoyed today's discussion. Tell your friends, rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates.